0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to the Outsider Art Out Podcast, Episode 10, Medge Gill. Imagine visiting your neighbourhood gallery for an exhibition of local amateur artists. You'd expect the standard watercolour landscapes, some well-rendered charcoal portraits perhaps, maybe a few jarringly colourblind abstracts. What you likely wouldn't expect would be what those entering the Whitechapel Gallery in 1932 found themselves staring at at the East End Academy exhibition an eighteen-foot-long piece entitled Reincarnation, described by Roger Cardinal as, "...a calico roll densely worked in coloured inks." I would assume that the still-life paintings of assorted fruit faded somewhat into the background in the face of this epic work, and the national press seemed to agree, singling out the artist responsible for attention. Madge Gill would work on these massive pieces in the kitchen of her terraced house in Plashett Grove in the East End of London. Michael Morgan Thais, who knew Gill through his journalist mother's friendship with her, describes watching Gill work. I was immediately fascinated by her, just the way she would sit at the table with a mug of tea and start drawing in one corner, especially when she was doing the long mural fabrics. She would just go. There did not seem to be any plan for anything at all. He continues. What I felt was the inside of her head all coming out, and it was a fascinating process to watch. I liked the fact that she started in one tiny bit of the fabric, went on straight through to the end, and it resulted in one whole entity. End quote. Gill would not see the entire work until it was completed and either rigged up by her sons in her back garden or hung at the Whitechapel Gallery. In 1939, one of her works, possibly her largest, measuring 40 metres in width, was exhibited, taking up an entire gallery wall. In Daniel Wachick's book, Outsider Art, Visionary Worlds and Trauma, he describes Gill's work. Quote, Thiel's art is indeed remarkable in its dizzying complexity, a vortex of swirling geometric patterns and labyrinthine designs, with shifting stairways, off-kilter architectural forms, interlocked zigzags and checkered areas, spirals and mazes and disembodied female faces suspended and peering at us through the free-flowing ectoplasmic forms of the compositions, portals to other worlds. So how did this self-taught artist come to create what have been recognised as visionary masterworks? If we are looking for a common thread amongst the artists we have already discussed on this podcast, we would likely have to conclude that the genesis of the artistic impulse may very well spring from traumatic events in their lives. In the lives of Wolfley, Ramirez, Scott, Trailer, and Gill, we find events from incarceration and institutionalisation to slavery, poverty, death, mental illness, isolation and abandonment from which emerge both an artistic impulse and the source of much of the creative power within their art. Gill certainly had a traumatic and difficult life peppered with personal tragedy and misfortune. That she turned to art as a reflection, I think, of the cathartic capacity of mark-making and ultimately the potential healing power of artistic expression. Though in Gill's case, it was a healing within an entrapment of esoteric spiritual compulsion. Madge Gill was born Maud Ethel Eades on January 19th, 1882 in Walthamstow, Essex. Her birth certificate does not list the name of her father and her mother, Emma Eads, fostered her with Joseph and Sarah Leakey at the request of the family. It was not at all uncommon for illegitimate children to be hidden away like this in Victorian times. In 1891, Madge was placed with Barnardo's in Barkingside, age nine, as her grandfather William could no longer afford to keep her fostered and in 1894 she was sent to Canada by Barnardos as part of a labour programme. She worked there as a domestic servant for several families and returned to England in 1900 aged 18. Upon her return she worked as a nurse at Whips Cross Hospital and in 1906 had her first child Lawrence out of wedlock with her cousin Tom Gill who she married in 1907. Her second son, Reginald, was born in 1910, followed in 1913 by Leonard. Tragedy struck the family in 1918 when Reginald died of the Spanish flu. Other members of Gill's family also died shortly afterwards. The following year, Gill's husband, having returned from the war, began to have concerns about her mental health and in 1920, Gill's left eye was removed due to a melanotic sarcoma. It was also in this year that Gil had an epiphany while singing and, having gone outside with her sons, saw a vision in the sky of Christ on a cross surrounded by angels. She began to draw, knit, sing, sew and write automatically, something that she would do for the rest of her life, a vocation that seems like it was compelled by an outside force over which she had little control. In a letter to journalist Louise Morgan, she once wrote, quote, "Dear Louise, I wish I could be normal." End quote. in nineteen twenty one, Gill gave birth to a stillborn daughter, and her mental health deteriorated further. She was admitted to Lady Chichester Hospital for the treatment of early nervous disorders in women and children. While hospitalised she continued to draw and write long stream of consciousness letters as well as speaking in strange languages. Gill was only hospitalised for a few months and upon being discharged moved in with her family with relatives Bert and Kate Gill who were both part of the burgeoning spiritualist movement that had begun in 1848 in New York and spread across Europe since that time. The movement had had a resurgence since the end of the First World War. The spiritualists believed they could receive spirit messages and had a strong tradition of visual and written arts as part of their practice. Gill also embraced spiritualist beliefs and practices and became somewhat of a minor poster child for the movement, with her mediumistic artwork being profiled as well as gracing covers of prominent journals and books on the subject. One of the most well-known aspects of Madge Gill's life is that of Munarest, her spirit guide. Munarest, often imagined as being a transliteration of my inner rest, was credited by Gill as the source of her artistic efforts. Gill herself was just the vessel through which the spirit world could be made manifest and she often signed her works with the name of Munarest. She also refused to sell her works during her lifetime claiming that it was not she who owned them, but her spirit guide. Roger Cardinal comments, <clears throat> quote, In his 1926 text, at The Spheres, her son Laurie bears witness to his mother's first experience of delirious trance states, which she found overwhelming and frightening. He evokes a whole gamut of creative modes at that time. Drawing, writing, knitting crochet work, weaving, piano playing, end quote. In the same piece, Cardinal, typically erudite, goes on to describe Gill's work, quote, While she still made heavily decorated cushions, quilts and dresses, her principal medium became ink drawing, executed on postcards, sheets of paper or card, and long rolls of untreated calico cloth, Gill's frenetic improvisations have an almost hallucinatory quality, each surface being filled with checkerboard patterns that suggest giddy, quasi-architectural spaces. Afloat upon these swirling proliferations are the pale faces of discarnate and nameless women, sketched perfunctorily, albeit with an apparent concern for beauty and with startled expressions. It is tempting to interpret them in relation to Gill's biography. Is she referring to her lost daughter, her beloved aunts, or to some feminine ideal? Are these, in a sense, self-portraits, or rather, attempts to stabilise her own fragile being, as though it were through fleeting snapshots? Another reading equates the face with Myrnarest, envisaged as the artist's otherworldly alter-ego, Immune to the traumas of actual life. End quote. For me, the female faces are the most insistent and memorable part of Gill's work. There is a haunting, ethereal aspect to them. They are sparse and clean, with just the barest of necessary features eyes, nose, mouth on the white space of the face, but surrounded by the complex, intricate linework of hair, headwear, and clothing as well as densely detailed, abstracted forms. And hence, they stand out. Your eyes are drawn to them amidst the visual noise of the rest of the image, and they hold a sort of majestic power. Which brings me to a point I should have perhaps made earlier on in this podcast series. I've been assuming, as I've done these podcasts, that you are all familiar with the work of each artist before you start listening to the podcast not necessarily intimately familiar in terms of knowing which untitled work from march 1932 i'm referring to in passing but familiar enough to have some images in your mind's eye as you listen i realize now that this is rather presumptuous of me and almost a bit rude so i apologize for that my aim for the podcast as i've mentioned before is to initiate further interest in and exploration of each artist following my brief episodes. But in a way, I think there would be some benefit to having at least a bit of an idea of what each artist's work looks like prior to each episode. I'm not aiming to try to describe or, through quoting them, let the experts describe an artist's art and oeuvre. It's a pointless task. Picture paints a thousand words and all that. So I'd suggest, but by no means insist, that if you aren't familiar with the work of any of the artists that I'm doing an episode on, you check out the relevant episode page on the podcast website, where I've put links through which you can view some of their work prior to listening. Of course, it's not a game changer if you don't, but I reckon it might help aid listening pleasure if you have some images lodged in your brain. Throughout the 1920s, Gill continued both with her art and with her spiritualist and mediumistic practices. Her work was first presented in an exhibition as part of the International Congress of Spiritualists in Belgium in 1923. In 1932, Gill would exhibit her work for the first time at the Whitechapel Gallery in the first East End Academy exhibition amateur artists that live within 10 miles of the old gate pump. As mentioned she was singled out by the press for her work reincarnation. She would continue to participate in this exhibition through until 1947. In 1948 Jean Dubuffet would form the Compagnie de l'art Brut in Paris and include Gill's work in the collection. In 1972, Roger Cardinal would include a chapter on Gill and his seminal work, Outsider Art. Gill created thousands of works during her lifetime, from her massive spontaneous works on calico rolls to hundreds of postcard-sized drawings that were almost mass-produced, as Roger Cardinal says, quote, improvised by the dozen. In 2013, gallerist Henry Boxer and singer David Tibet compiled a book of these postcards entitled Minarest, which I think illustrates the intense compulsiveness of Gill's life's work. There's something unsettling looking at these images, and knowing that she didn't necessarily want to make them, but rather had to make them, and just couldn't stop. Unknown to me, until I started researching this episode, were Gill's embroidered tapestries, which were discovered in 2018 by Sophie Dutton while researching her book, Madge Gill by Minarest. Dutton has also set up an excellent website called Works by Madge Gill, which I'll put a link to on the episode page. The website has articles and some fascinating interviews with the aforementioned Michael Thais, Madge Gill's cousin Betty Newman and Sir Peter Blake. It also includes images of Gill's work including her embroidered tapestries. Dutton describes these embroidered works in an article written for Decorated Dissidents. Quote, "Girls' Gill's embroideries are mesmeric, explosions of colour, free flowing pattern and seemingly infinite threads. They present a self-taught and unrestrained stitching technique which uses a repetitive method layering the threads over and over, blending the freeform patterns in color to make the fabric appear almost painted. Enormous quantities of thread were used to complete each unique item. The untied threads spill out over the edges and her stitches fill every inch, overflowing the framework of calico or torn bed sheets and giving the impression of no beginning and no end to the embroidery. The threads are so tightly stitched That the calico foundation is no longer visible on the reverse of each work, and the final pieces often warp and pucker. These undulating waves in the fabric create a hypnotic landscape of colour that bring her patterning to life. These eleven exceptional pieces were first exhibited at the William Morris Gallery in Gill's hometown of Walthamstow in East London in 2019. Since her death on January 28, 1961, Gill's works have filtered out into the public sphere. Many were gifted to the East Ham Council by her son Laurie, who was a conscientious supporter of his mother's art and spiritual practice. Further works were sold to the Grosvenor Gallery in 1966 after Gill's house was cleared, and the embroidered tapestries were found in the loft of an antiques dealer a few years ago. Her largest surviving work, the 25-foot-long Crucifixion of the Soul, featured in the Hayward Gallery's groundbreaking Outsiders' Exhibition in 1979. Gill has been featured prominently as one of the preeminent figures within both art brute, self-taught, visionary, and outsider art circles for many decades, and has been written about and exhibited extensively, as well as being held in several public collections. There is something unique and fascinating about the work of the self-taught visionary Madge Gill. The nameless women that feature in almost all of her drawn and painted works provide a haunting gaze, challenging the viewer to both look more closely, but so intensely do they stare that it's hard not to look away. They are the eyes to the soul of an unseen force that unrelentingly drove the hand of an artist for over 40 years. As always, I will provide a reading list and links on the show's episode page. As I mentioned, the Works by Madge Gill website is an excellent resource, as is the madgegill.com website. There's also a YouTube link to the Orleans House Gallery Madge Gill discussion from 2013. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I apologise for it taking so long to get to you. It's been school holidays over here in New Zealand and there's been regular beach visits to attend to. Please consider giving the show a rating or a review and follow and share the Outsider Art Podcast if you can. As I mentioned in the last episode, the podcast has a severely undersubscribed Facebook page, which is still severely undersubscribed and also an Instagram page, which is doing slightly better. Any love shown to these pages will be rewarded with my deepest gratitude. Links are at shows.acast.com outsider-art-podcast. For episode 11, I'm thinking of venturing into the outdoors and looking at one of the most visited attractions in India. That's right, it's Nick Chan's Rock Garden in Chandigarh, which Because I was a young fool, I didn't visit when I was in India 20 or so years ago. So join me next time on the Outsider Art Podcast for a journey to a fascinating visionary environment. And thanks so much for listening.